0: Mojo Radio Show News. I say to you, you've got to have Mojo, baby, yeah! News with a difference.
1: Cheating is on the rise in the workplace, and it's a good thing. Who said you had to have all the ideas? No one person has a monopoly on all the world's great ideas. In fact, sometimes the most unlikely people can come up with the goods, and often that's because they don't feel restricted to the usual norms. Ask your partner, friends or family. Start verbalising or get the ball rolling in an open forum. The seed of an idea might come from your discussion and give you the jump start you need. Remember, it's always easy to get too close to a project, so putting a fresh head onto the idea might be just what's required. So it's not really cheating. It's just making the most of all available resources. Mind you, Gordon Gecko did say, Cheating is good, cheating is right, cheating works.
0: Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working.
2: I got my mojo working.
0: Just won't
3: work on you. Hey everybody and welcome on board the Big Red Bus the we've come to know as the Mojo radio show. We are heading due north today to Digital Town. Lola, these are your people.
2: I'm listening.
3: Around the grounds very quickly, Mayor Peters in the house. Are you awake?
0: Yeah, I'm awake, but uh, I can't guarantee I will be by the end of this show.
3: And Robbo behind the wheel of the Big Red Bus,
2: how are you going? Uh, I'm okay, but I've got a bit of a public bone to pick with you this week, mate, i would be honest. I don't usually air our dirty laundry on this program, but I've got a bit of a bone to pick with you this week. Uh, right, go ahead. Uh, we had a bit of a mystery phone call from heaven last week on the show. During the week last week, I got another one. Just see if this makes any sense to you.
1: Hey, g'day, Robbo. Uh, it's Pete Harrison from Fish River Roasters, mate. Uh, look, I've got some bad news. Uh, you know how you were coming around to pick up a kilo Colombian uh, Supremo coffee from me? Well, look, uh, there's a bit of a problem. Um, look, Burt Whistle's just been round, uh, and he came round with a ute, and he just said... Give me everything you got. He took everything. He took Kenyan, he took Ethiopian, took all the blends. He even took the decaf. Mate, I think he's hoarding coffee. I think he's hoarding coffee and he's putting it in that bunker with all his pasta and his toilet paper rolls that he's collected. Yeah, mate, I'm really sorry. Uh, look, I don't know what we're going to do, but uh, I'll see if I can get you a brew later in the week. Thanks, mate.
2: Please explain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no coffee
3: for me, Why, what, but sounds what seems what is, like what, what,
2: a ute load for you.
3: Do you know it's interesting? Right, I've got something for you. On, I've got something for you on coronavirus. Okay, okay, are you dodging the bullet here, Bert Whistle? No, no, but this is this adds. It's this plays into the whole coronavirus right, pandemic. Okay. Yep, but this is legit. Yeah, take the take the Premier League or any soccer, or as they call it in heaven, football, match that's now being played around the world in front of no crowds. Guy kicks a goal. <laughs> what he used to do is run away from his teammates <laughs> towards the crowd, slide on both knees, take off his shirt and whip it around his head to the, to the crowd. However, games are being played with no crowd. Mm -hmm. So what does the guy do? (laughs) He runs to his teammates, I suppose. I don't know. And here's here's my lesson of all this, which I think is fascinating. Suddenly, does that mean he has to pay more attention and appreciate his team more? So it's the only game where when you score, you run away from your teammates (laughs) and play up to the crowd. Right. So does that mean... As you see now in front of these games with no crowds, you've actually have to now go back to your teammate. Let's flip it across to cricket. One Day International is played recently with no crowd. Batsman scores a 50, salutes who? His teammates in the shed. Guy takes a wicket, appeals, the guy's out. Who does he play up to? There's no one in the crowd. And what was really interesting, and this is something a listener said to me, is This actually, what the impact of this on sport has taken the ego out of sport because suddenly you've got no one to play up to. You've only got your teammates to play up to because there's no one in the audience. There's no cheering. There's no colours. There's no rants. So all the carry-on the players go on with is gone because there's no one there. So suddenly it's about the purity of the game And suddenly it's about the purity of the game with your teammates. I think it's such an interesting area we're going into with this whole coronavirus shutting down audiences being at sport. If sport continues and it would have to continue with no ego, then I think it's a very, very defining moment for sport. What do you think?
2: As a a footballer? I, I think you're probably right, but you still haven't answered my question. (laughs) Where's my tiger snake? Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. Okay, honest answer. Do you buy your wife flowers? No. You don't? I grow them. You grow them. Okay, so you bring your wife flowers though, right? Mm -hmm. Do you find they start to wilt just a couple of days after you bring them into the house? Well, we're a bit different because I haven't bought them from a shop so I've got them from the garden so I probably get a week, a good week out of them. Okay, well, let me help you maybe even more. Researchers in Australia have discovered that a small amount of Viagra, dissolved in a vase of water, (laughs) can also double the shelf life of your cut flowers, making them stand up straight for as long as a week beyond their natural lifespan. They've already tested this on strawberries, legumes, roses, carnations, broccoli and other veggies and found that just one milligram of the little blue peel is enough to give your roses a stiffy. Now, you might ask why this research is important and it actually does have a serious side. It turns out that it could actually provide the food industry with an entirely new way for preserving agricultural produce and then bringing it to market, something they're working on as we speak. So in the future, if your wife wife asks if you've eaten all your carrots tonight, she may not necessarily be concerned with your eyesight. So AP, does this actually, given the fact that you've got the little blue
3: pill, does this actually work?
0: Yes, well, being an ex-Brit, we um, like to have a stiff upper lip. (laughs) And being a fashionista, I like to make sure everything is matching. You know what I mean?
3: Matter of fact, I've got it now. (laughs) Oh, my God. Anyway, let's get on with the
0: show. (laughs) The Mojo Radio Show.
3: Our guest this week is Daniel Rolls, and he's worked on both the client side and the agency side of digital marketing for a couple of decades. He's a certified Google Squared trainer. He is also a lecturer at the Cranfield School of Management on digital marketing. Daniel works with companies of all, all categories, all sizes, to help them use their digital marketing effectively, and he's worked with startups right through to our global clients like uh, BBC, Sony, Tesco, Vodafone, Mercedes, L'Oreal, Warner Brothers, not a bad list of names to drop. Uh, he's also the voice of a very good show that I listened to called the Digital Marketing Podcast, which is where I came across his work. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you very much for having me. When, when people meet you for the first time Daniel, at a party or an office situation and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply?
4: Um, most of the time I say that I work in ed tech. Just to simplify things, so I say I work in educational technology, and then nine times out of ten, they've got no idea what ed tech is. So that that starts a bit of a conversation. But I I always like to think that we do various different things in education, and it, that's the focus. Education's the focus, rather than it being, you know, uh, digital marketing, whatever you want to call me. Um, it's just it's the education side of things, and we started off in digital marketing. We then moved into uh, digital transformation. We do a lot of stuff in data science as well, um, and digital marketing is really the core of it. So, Target Internet, which is the main company that I run, is a digital marketing learning business. So it, it is all that education piece.
3: It's a really interesting distinction, isn't it? And I'm, I'm, I'm curious. This whole conversation I'm very curious about because this is, this is one of those blurred areas, and it's even out of the gate saying I'm about educating and not the doing. And I heard a quote that you talked about. You said people like to do the thing and not be accountable for the thing. (laughs) Do many of us not want to measure what we're doing so that no one knows it's not actually working? Is that part of the education process for you?
4: It is. I I mean, I should clarify as well because rather than saying it's it's the educating, not the doing, what we try and do is say, we know how to do it and therefore we can educate rather than just being people that, you know, there's so many courses you can buy out there online that are by people that have never done this stuff in the real world. And I think that's the crux of it is that the, the bottom line is that there's, there's a lot of information out there. Yeah, there's more and more information out there. And actually, you can read up. It makes perfect sense. The theory is completely right. And then you go to do it and it just falls apart and it doesn't work. And you don't really know why. There's also the other point where most people that are in roles doing what we kind of define as digital marketing, which is pretty broad, uh, are essentially doing it, not measuring it, then doing something else, and then doing something else. And and it's just activity for the sake of it. And I think we've got to this point where a lot of the metrics and analytics are just used for vanity purposes, i.e. I'm reporting to someone else. So therefore, I'm going to show a chart that's going upwards. And that looks pretty good. But the problem is with web analytics, there's so many different reports. I mean, like, something like Google Analytics, so website analytics, it, it, there's over 360 reports in it. And they'll, they'll tell you anything you want to kind of – you can always find a chart that's going upwards. So the, the reality is that knowing what you're measuring, measuring it and iterating. And that the word I try and say more than anything else is iteration. You do something, you measure it, you try and work out what it was telling you, and then you do something else. And it's just missing. It's just missing from the industry still. And I, what amazes me is that we've been saying this for maybe a decade now. And the needle is moving a bit. But actually, I think the large organizations are the ones that are generally worse at it. The startups and the small businesses are the ones that really have to focus their minds. Because they've got limited time, limited resources. And the reality is if they're going to do something, they need to make it count. And there's so much noise out there. There's just so many different digital channels you could be using. Uh, Social media is changing at such a pace that just in reality, I just don't want to do 10 things. I want to do the one that works. So I think that's what it really comes down to. And taking a fairly scientific approach to something that in a lot of companies is still seen as the kind of pretty pictures department and actually try and make that more of a science.
3: I'm hoping by the end of this show, we've given a person who runs a company some direction, a person who runs the company who has a digital marketer working for them some direction, and ideally someone who is running a company who has an outsourced digital marketing agency working for them some direction. There's a couple of things you just mentioned I want to sort of, I guess, cover off before we keep going is that is <laughs> with that myriad of metrics that you talked about, and that's one of the reasons that I wrote to you to say, look, will you come on the show? Because I absolutely agree with you, and it's a maze. And I just want somebody to sort this out for our, for us, for us all. Are we hiding behind those metrics because we don't want to be held accountable? Because with three hundred Google Analytics and all this stuff, yet the poor business owner doesn't know whether he or she's being taken by somebody because they'll say, well, here's all the figures. You're getting these metrics. Is it almost? we throw these things up as a veil of secrecy so that nobody gets found out to know they're not doing a good job?
4: Uh, yes, <laughs> a lot of the time. So the, a couple of situations. The, the first one is you've got a lot of what are now digital marketers that were traditional marketers and don't really get digital properly. And it maybe not for any fault of their own, but they haven't been educated, they don't have the experience and they're doing stuff they're not that familiar with. So that's, that's one element of it. Another element is the fact that it is changing so quickly. So we're in pretty uncharted territory all the time. And therefore, it's, it's not always easy to benchmark against something else. You've got agencies that are doing digital marketing that will, like any agents, they want to prove what a great job they've done. And they want to keep that budget and they want to retain it. So therefore, they're going to show you what looks good. And they generally are going to know more than you. And something I often say is, you know, to manage an agency effectively, you need to know as much as the agency. I think I spend an awful lot of my time doing training for very large organizations, for the Chartered Institute of Marketing, for um, Imperial College here in London, at the business school. And the, the reality is a lot of the time we're training very senior people or we're training business owners. And they've got an agency doing this stuff for them already. And the agency, are, you know, there might not be a bad agency, but they just need to know how to hold the agency to account. And actually, they might have a digital marketer working for them. And very often, they don't know how good that digital marketer is. And I think the solution is actually going back to absolute fundamentals, which is to say, what are we trying to do as a business? What are the actual outcomes we want? And I would suggest there are only really three types of business in the world. Okay. So you have got e-commerce businesses, which sell stuff, online and it's super easy you do something you get a result and that's nice and easy but unfortunately the majority of businesses in the world aren't like that then uh, you've got lead generation businesses online where what I want online is a lead I want someone to fill in a form I want them to pick up the phone um, and then I can then convert that into a sale and then you've got the hard bit which is the kind of brands which is the I want you to engage with my content online But then what I want you to do is walk into my store, or I want you to change your behavior or something else, and that's hard. And what we've got in all three situations is we've got to decide what our primary online objective is. That is, what do I actually want you to do online? Is it fill in that form, that lead gen? Is it make that actual purchase? Or is it some sort of content engagement? But I need to define that. And until I've decided which three of those things it is, and I've defined it, I can't really measure my success. Because I can measure all sorts of other things. I can look at reach. I can look at engagement. I can look at all the lovely likes that I've got and the comments. And I can look at the clicks. And it's telling me nothing because I just don't know if it's led to what I want. So that's the starting point. The starting point is deciding exactly what you want to happen online. Um, And if I give you an example, so target internet we sell online courses so therefore what I want online is either lead generation I want someone to come in and fill in a form and say I would like that for my business or I've got someone putting a credit card in and doing an e-commerce transaction now that's they're both relatively easy to measure I can then track everything back uh, and I'll talk about how in a moment whereas if I am a brand and I want you to walk into my shop uh, I want you to walk into someone else's shop and buy my thing then I've got to define some sort of engagement and that might be you're going to watch a video to the end or you're going to engage with the content for a certain period of time because what I'm saying is I've got a proxy for success. I think that if you do that, you're more likely to do the thing that I want you to do. It doesn't mean you're going to, but it means you're more likely to and if you if you start with that that definition of what you want, then you can work backwards and the uh, The solution to it is in web analytics, which is kind of unfortunate because that puts a lot of people off. But the solution is you set your goals up in web analytics. Now, you can have loads of goals in analytics. You can measure people signing up for emails and listening to podcasts and looking at certain pages. But you need to define that primary thing you want them to do as a goal because then you can track it backwards and then you can work out how did they get there. Because, you know, you might click on a tweet, you might visit a website three times, you might do a search in Google, and then you do the thing I want you to do. And actually, it's only because that tweet that happened in the first place. But unless I've got all this set up, I just don't know that I need to understand the user journey. And if you go back to the fundamentals of marketing, they're saying, okay, who's my target audience? What do they want? What do I want them to do? And how do I align those things and understand their journey? That's what we're talking about. So all the all the digital stuff and all everything else can get in the way. But the the reality is that it's about understanding that journey and then fine-tuning it to get more people to do the thing I want them to do and give them what they want.
3: And it's interesting because you and Kieran on your own podcast, the digital marketing podcast, which I have been immersing myself in to try and understand this world, Mm -hmm. you talk a lot about the digital strategy. And that's a word we hear thrown out a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yet what I've just heard you say is, that's That's a tactical thing, but if the business doesn't understand a true strategy or the company doesn't have a true strategy of what they're about right then that's going to filter down to a lack of digital strategy completely yeah it this sounds like we've got've got, we, got out we're putting at the wrong at the wrong target we, we're actually we're pointing at a digital strategy because you'll hear that for later, so I've got a digital agency are we are you seeing with the work you're doing that we actually lack a proper company or business strategy, in which case that's filtering down, in which case we're measuring the wrong things?
4: Well, we we love sticking the word digital in front of things. So we've got a a real thing where we'll, you know, it's digital marketing and it's digital transformation and it's digital culture. And uh, the the reality is that if there isn't an underlying business strategy and a marketing strategy, uh, digital is just a part of that. Now, it may be if you're a pure play online e-commerce business, then having just a digital strategy might be acceptable, but bear in mind, even Amazon does TV ads and print ads and um, have a very clearly defined business strategy. So I think what's fascinating to me is if you, if you talk about digital transformation, right, and this is a lot of answers a lot of what you've just said digital transformation, all it's really doing is saying, where are we now as an organization, and where do we need to be to do and cope in this fast-paced and increasingly digital environment? Now, all of the things that you need aren't necessarily digital at all. They're um, a learning culture. You need a culture in the organization of ongoing learning. You need clarity on your objectives. You need a clearly defined business strategy. You need a marketing strategy that's aligned with that. That needs to include your digital strategy. They need to be one and the same thing. It's leadership buying. It's having IT and infrastructure in the right places. So digital won't fix if there's fundamental things missing in the business. And I think quite often, people start businesses, they haven't got complete clarity on what their strategy is, and therefore, they start doing tactical activity and go, well, it didn't work. But actually, it's not the tactics, it's because some of the core stuff's missing. Um, And I think it's this tendency to stick the word digital in front of things. And I mean, coming from me, (laughs) who's got the digital marketing podcast and a book (laughs) for building digital culture. And books, uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so um, it was funny. We, we, we got Chartered Management Institute book of the year for digital culture. Um, and the guy, it was the Financial Times in London that were awarding it. And he said, well, I liked it, but I hated the title. I said, yeah, I kind of agree, but no one knows what you're talking about otherwise. Yeah, exactly. So, and it, it's this kind of digital marketing thing. It is just marketing. It's just a lot of the channels have become um, digital. What was interesting to me, so we we do this digital skills benchmark, and we go through and we test people. So we've had, I think, over 7,000 people go through this thing now and test their skills. It takes about half an hour to do it online. Um, and essentially, it works out where the skills are. And what we were finding is that the senior people had pretty solid marketing skills but lacked the tactical knowledge, whereas the more junior people and generally younger people had really good tactical knowledge and things like that, but they didn't have the fundamentals of marketing and, and business. And what that means is that neither audience is really capable of getting this right. They need to work together, but there's a bit of a chasm between them because they're not speaking the same language. And that can lead to all sorts of kind of culture issues as well within organizations.
3: That's a really interesting point, isn't it? I mean, that, because I was going to ask you, why are there marketing managers that have a digital team? Why? Because back in the day, when I was a kid growing up, and I'm a bit older, but when I was growing up, you had a marketing manager who did, you marketed. You did everything. You did the tactics, you did the strategy, you did the plan, you did the whole thing. But nowadays, why, why is the marketing person, the marketing team, why, is, why are there separate divisions? And you just answered that because the skill set doesn't apply. Is, is, it, is it because marketing people go, that's my, my skill set? I need someone who specializes in digital tactics and they don't take the time to learn those things? Is that what's happening with
4: it? Definitely. I think there's, a, there's been a fear of it. I mean, I think a lot of marketing managers were kind of terrified. They, We all, with technology, a lot of people just burying their heads in the sand and they're saying, well, you know, I still do this thing and this is going to carry on. And you only have to look at the print industry and you look at what's happened to music and streaming and everything else, that these these big waves of technology do change things. And I think when people have resisted that change for too long, they say, well, okay, I need to get an expert in. But if they don't have the core knowledge to manage that person and to direct that person. Uh, therefore, it causes problems. And it may be the digital person isn't it, all that great, but they don't even know. So I think there's there's definitely an element of that. And you've got, I mean, there's so many charlatans in this industry. It's quite incredible. So there's, you know, there's, I, I couldn't get over it. A couple of years ago, and I think I was a bit late to the party with this, where you start getting inviting to these webinars. And I, you know, I'll come and see the webinar of our product. There's one launching in 16 minutes. And I was like, wow, they must be running these regularly. And then you go in and there's like a 1,000 people and they're all chatting and you're like, wow, this is incredible. And then you realize it's just a piece of software that records a webinar and then runs it um, and anyone can log into it. And it's all kind of pre-recorded. It's all a bit of a scam. And it's just being used everywhere. And it's like that's complete snake oil, yet we buy into it and we're given some sort of tactical instruction and we go off and we do the thing that doesn't work. And you think, oh, it must be something I've done. And it's, it's just actually you've just been told the wrong stuff which is why I always like to get back to the fundamentals, which is to say, okay, who's your audience? How can you really delight them? And whether it's search optimization, getting to the top of Google, content marketing, creating engaging content, social media, it all comes down to the same thing now, which is actually create something that's unique and engaging. So if your strategy is that we're going to go through and going to engage our customers through content marketing, and we use the tactics to write one blog post a week, Oh, it's just, just everyone's doing it, and it you know you're much better off doing one blog post every six months that's truly exceptional and unique and interesting uh, than you are just pumping stuff out that's not of much value. Um, there's, there's definitely something to be said about regularity, I mean don't get me wrong, but at the same time that actual uniqueness is really important.
3: If I tie a few threads together here to our blogs and skills. Hmm. you wrote in a blog, the majority of universities are not teaching the right skills. Uh, hello to our friends at Harvard, Oxford and Yale, all big <laughs> listeners of the Mojo Radio <laughs> Show. Hi, guys. Um, if only. And Castle um, Hill Tafe. Um, I can't even yeah. spell. We can't even spell Harvard, <laughs> let alone. How do you spell Yale? Uh, but the universities are not teaching the right skills. What are the skills that we need to know that are not being taught that a business leader either should understand or go and seek out to learn, Daniel?
4: Right. So this, is, this will be a long-winded answer, but bear with me. So first of all, this, this university thing is a massive bugbear of mine because universities are businesses and they are not providing value for money for their customers because their customers are coming out with degrees that they can't get jobs with. Uh, so there's a, there's a real problem there. The the whole and this isn't all universities. I mean some of the ones you mentioned, um I'm a programme director at Imperial College in London. There are universities that are exceptions to this. But what I would say is that the way the academic world works is that everything is out of date. So if I write a book, it gets published nine months later. A couple of months later it might get selected as a course text. The next year it goes on to the course and at that point it's already two, two and a half years out of date. So the skills that are needed one is the up-to-date skills because this stuff changes really quickly so therefore making sure you're up to date and having that commitment to lifelong learning this is just something that's never going to stop it's going to get faster and faster so you need to have some techniques and an approach to learning um and you know that that needs to be embedded into kind of everything you do so that's one of the things the other thing is the you can specialize in something, but you're going to need broad problem-solving skills. So we've just opened this thing called the Digital Leadership Program. Um, and it, we're taking in students out of school. We're taking part-time people. But essentially what we're doing is teaching them three key areas. One is uh, the digital and tech. So they're all the stuff we're talking about, the digital marketing stuff, the, the coding stuff, not so they can be coders, but they can manage coders, and they, they know how to speak to them. So they've got the technology skills. Next, it's the management and leadership stuff. So the entrepreneurial skills that you need and so on. Uh, and then third, it's the creative skills. Now, I'm not expecting everyone to be a designer, but they need to know enough to be able to solve a problem quickly and also to direct a designer. And if you've got those three sets of skills, you can specialize in any of them. But what it means is, you, it's a bit of a, you know, spoken about a lot, of that, you know, they're T-shaped people. So you've got very deep skills in your specialist area, but you have a broad set of problem-solving skills as well. And I think that, As the work environment changes more and more and more quickly and things are being replaced, they're being automated, we're having to change our businesses, we're having to pivot all the time, that having that broad set of skills is really important. So one of the things I really encourage is, yes, you need to know about some digital marketing stuff and we can talk about that. But actually listening to things, I mean, like your podcast, you talk about a whole range of topics. Uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast, listening to a whole range of topics, just broadening your mind a little bit. Because otherwise, you're just too focused on one thing and it just doesn't open you up to other opportunities. And I think that's at at the crux of it. I also think the ability to work out what is unique and what is different and actually understand that just doing yet another um, blog about 300 words, you should do this, great, but it doesn't really provide any value. And actually, if you look at someone like Tim Ferriss, what he's been exceptionally good at doing is going into something and doing content that is completely unique. And his blog posts are a great example of that. Um, so I think it's it's that working out that uniqueness and understanding the customer. And that's, that's the thing that's really key. When it comes then to the digital marketing, it just comes down to content marketing, which is just creating great content and all the skills that tie around that. And they're all overlapping. So it's, you know, content marketing, the podcast, the blogs – it's the search engine optimization to make sure that's built in such a way that it stands a chance of showing up on top of Google and that will you know, make or break a business, um, particularly if you're trying to drive much business online. Um, and I think if you can crack those things, the content marketing, the search optimization, that's what can really make a difference.
3: I've seen you at the front of the room talking about your digital leadership in the course you've just started in now running this course, and when you look at the audience, they are tomorrow's leaders who are there to learn and become betterer, which is an Australian term for better. Uh, <laughs> what, have you, what have you learned about yourself by running that course, Daniel? You are standing in front of these kids who are sceptical. They, they want to learn. They're putting their trust in you to give them that digital leadership. Now that you've done it from the front of the room, what have you learned about yourself by doing it?
4: I think there's a couple of things with this because the, we've got two groups. We've got the, the straight out of school um, and we've got the people that have come in to do this part-time and evening. And interestingly, the part-time and evening are all mid-career. They want to change career. They're in finance. They want to do something new. They want to start a business. They're passionate. They're engaged. And they're, they're very, very focused on what they want to achieve from it. <laughs> I think a lot of the time, the 18-year-olds the coming into it are a lot more cynical about it. I mean, they also realize this is the first time we've run this, so they're they're cautious about what we're doing, but they are taking a very broad view of the world. And what's interesting is they're not coming and saying, I am going to start this business. They're like, well, I think I'm going to start a business, but I'm not sure what it is yet, and therefore... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suck it and see it and see how I get on with this. And every expectation I've had has been incorrect. So I think, well, we're doing d- digital marketing and media production. Are they going to be well, much more into the digital marketing? Yeah, not so much. Um, and, and it's those kind of things. And you have to learn and you have to constantly adjust as well. And what I found, when I'm out training in businesses, I'm kind of delivering stuff that I've done a thousand times before. And it's constantly updated. It's changed. But the, the people you're dealing with have the same context as you. Whereas when you're teaching someone that's coming straight out of school, one, they've been institutionalized. They, they are l- used to learning in a certain way. And we're teaching them a completely different way. We're throwing them into tasks. And actually what we focused on quite a lot is resilience training at the beginning, um, stress management, dealing with change, all those kind of soft skills things. Because I've realized that that really needs to be a major part of it in terms of what I've learned about myself is that I think I had a very successful, the last you know five years have been incredibly successful. And I think I'd let myself get into a bit of a comfort zone. And this has totally thrown me out of that. That's absolutely for sure. So that's actually been fantastic because I really started, really started pushing myself a lot more again as well. So I think I've learned a lot from that. And I think I hadn't thought about this, that I kind of got to the point where target internet was running really well. Um, I was, pumping out a book every year or so and they were kind of winning awards and doing really well um i was the most kind of financially uh comfortable i've ever been i'd moved somewhere beautiful my family and i kind of got really comfortable and actually that's a bit dangerous and doing something that that's a little bit terrifying again uh, has been fantastic and actually one thing i knew anyway because of teaching at imperial college being around young people um and i'm I'm not that old, but I am getting older now. Is being around those 18, 21 year olds is actually fantastic because you learn an awful lot from them as well. You see that actually they see things slightly differently to you. There's a lot of commonality in there as well. And I think we've gone through a period in time where everyone keeps talking about, you know, millennials, millennials are this, millennials are that. And this whole idea of putting one massive age group into one pot and saying, well, they're all lazy and they're it's just, it's just absolutely shocking. And Actually, if you spend any time with young people, you suddenly realise it's quite the opposite. And they just, they're just they they're doing exciting interesting things. They're passionate. And I think that's been good. So I think, yeah, pushing my comfort zones has been good and actually spending more time with young people. Although, I mean, saying that, I've got a 17-year-old daughter. So I kind of you see it differently when you're amongst big groups of them as well. though. And I think that's a really important thing to do, especially as you get older and especially as you become more successful and more separated from what it was like being 18.
3: This is an open-ended question, but based on – what you just said with that newer crowd coming through university and then conversely with a marketing manager who could be 35, 40, 45 years old and or the corporate leader who's got an organisation of 12 to 20 people who run an engineering company. What's your observation of ego? And the reason I say that is that I'm curious as to whether the ego you're seeing the same thing with those that are coming to you to learn versus the ego of a marketer who's going, well, I've been doing this for a long time. I don't need to learn. Where? What's your view on ego and where does it sit? Where is it valuable? Where is it doing us damage?
4: So the people that have turned up to do the evening and weekend courses have, have pretty much abandoned ego at the door because they are standing up in front of a group of strangers saying, I need to change my career. I want to start a business and I don't know enough and I'm here to learn. And by all that commonality between them, they've, they've kind of parked it at the door. Um, and there'll be different levels of that, but it's, it's pretty um, encouraging and it's a good environment. When you go into a lot of organisations uh, and we're talking you know, global top businesses, we'll go in and very often there'll be a tier of people that are like, I know what I'm doing. I don't, I don't need this. And that is hugely damaging because i think it's this comfort thing i just spoke about they've been successful doing what they're doing for a period of time and therefore they think that's always going to be the case but the reality is the world is changing so quickly around us it won't continue forever there are some people that are trying to eke that out and they're just about to retire in a number of years and think you know what i just don't want to change what i'm doing and i think that comes back to my whole thing of um, committing to lifelong learning I, i think there is a thing of Resistance to technology as some sort of badge of honor. Sometimes, ah, this this digital thing's nonsense, and you know it's not for me. And I'm old school, and it's all about relationships. Yeah, it is. I'm not. I'm not saying it's not about relationships, but the reality is that it's worn as a badge of honor, and it shouldn't be. And that is to do with, and it's not necessarily ego, or it is ego, but it's on the side of actually fear, because there's an underlying fear in there that they don't know what they're doing. We do a lot of training for CEOs and for people that have run successful startups. And actually what you find is they like to do separate training sessions to everyone else because then they get to admit they don't know stuff. And the, the leaders that have been really good at leading digital transformations are the people that have gone, I don't get this. I need to go on a learning journey with you and we're all going to learn about this kind of stuff. And I don't need to know all of it. I need to know enough to manage people that are doing it effectively. So I think you're, you're absolutely right about the ego thing. And I think that there, there's, there's a healthy cynicism about a lot of digital things because if I'd said to, if someone had said to me, oh, you'll be using Snapchat for marketing massive automotive brands uh, a couple of years ago, I would have gone, no, nah, we won't. It's just not, that's not what it's for. But it shifts and it changes. And, and that means that essentially we've, we have to have that approach to learning. We have to have that approach to be a bit flexible in our thinking. And flexible thinking is not an easy thing to have, especially as you get older and you get successful or you've done things the same way for a long time because you kind of assume things will be like this and continue. And they don't. And that's, that's the fundamental is the, change, the pace of change is getting faster and faster. and We have to adopt that.
3: It's an interesting question, isn't it? If you went to any corporate leader whether in marketing or a C-suite and said on a score of one to 10, how flexible is your thinking? That's a really interesting metric to start to challenge somebody to say, how stuck in your ways are you? How open are you to learning? Where are you getting uncomfortable and moving into knowledge that you don't understand? Whereas the last time you stood in front of a room and said, I don't understand this. I don't have a clue. I'm here to learn. But scoring yourself on flexibility and curiosity, uh, that would be quite challenging for a lot of leaders, I suspect
4: it would, and they'd, they'd give you they'd give you a high score, and they 'd probably be wrong and I think it's, <laughs> we need we need methodologies for testing this. you know you need a way of actually you know, seeing how up to date people are, seeing how flexible they can be, see if they can change their minds i mean it the world around us at the moment is very divisive you're, you're either for something or you 're against it, and it, you know the extremity of opinion is you love something or you hate it, and there's not much in between and I think it's it's led to an environment where you people aren't being as flexible in their thinking. And I think that, that's reflected in politics. It's reflected in a number of different things. But I think it's very easy to get that way as you get more senior. And I think we just need to have that at the back of our minds. And I think if we have it at the back of our minds and we have some sort of structured approach to learning, then then there's an opportunity to change that.
3: You mentioned the word content. With... You sit on some awards panels, you're immersed in it every day, you're teaching it, you're running a company that's involved in it, you're podcasting. What's the latest in the content world? If we look at that as a, as a topic that you mentioned just a second ago, how should we be now in this day and age be thinking about content in a very competitive, cluttered landscape?
4: So I think that the way you ended that is the key thing. The fact it's competitive and cluttered and cutting through is increasingly hard. So my feeling on it is if you write something, well, unless you've got a really well-established website and if you write something, it's very hard to get it ranking in Google. It's very hard to give it the visibility it may deserve because there's so many people that are well-established and uh, the, the rules behind Google make it quite hard for new websites unless they're doing something that's getting huge amounts of kind of press coverage and everyone's talking about them linking through to their website from other websites. It's really hard to get out there. So written content is hard. Um, which is one of the reasons we started the digital marketing podcast. So everyone was writing digital marketing blogs, and we looked at our persona, our target audience. They were marketers, they were comms people, they were finance directors, and we worked out the one thing they all had in common is they commute. They spend a fair bit of time traveling, either in their car or in in the UK on a train, wherever it may be, and therefore they're a lot more likely to listen to podcasts. So that that was the right channel for us. It was a channel that that, there aren't really that many digital marketing podcasts out there. So we kind of given ourselves an advantage immediately because we weren't competing with so many people. Um, so that was, that was good, the, the kind of medium specificity of the whole thing, that it was the right channel for us. Um, video is an interesting one. So one thing I would pick up on is that, you know, for everyone saying, oh, video is really important, video is important, Google is suddenly doing a lot more stuff to feature um, videos in the search results. So there's, there's two things they're doing. You'll notice if you do any videos in YouTube, uh, you will see a new feature. If it's not there already, you'll see it coming up. And they are allowing you to kind of put markers in your video and say what that bit's about. So you've got transcriptions, but you can put these timestamps in. And what that means, Google is starting to do is allowing people to search within videos. So the idea you'll be able to go to Google, you'll search something, and it won't just give you a video, it'll give you the bit of the video. Because we all know it's like when you go to YouTube and you watch it, you, know, you just want to know how to do something. And this, this person will tell you, we're going to tell you in this video how to do the thing. And the thing is going to be amazing. And we're going to tell you, and they just go on. And then three minutes in, you find out how to do the thing and it takes 10 seconds. So, um, it's going to avoid that, but also there's an opportunity there. So I would say video content. Um, we just wrote the podcasting book. Podcasting is growing at a ridiculous rate still as well. So I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity in that space as well. um, I think it is the uniqueness of the content. As I said, so it's it's the speaking to your audience, and it is you know if you if you can work out you've got an audience of five people and they would love this, then you speak to those five people, and there will be a lot more people like those five people rather than being all things to all people because it's just it's really really tough to do that. Um, and then the the last thing I kind of think about with this is that. You need to be where your audience is. So unless you understand your audience, what media are they consuming? So are they on Instagram? Is it you know? Are they still on Facebook? What, what is it they actually do on a day-by-day basis? And don't make assumptions. One of the biggest mistakes goes back to this strategy piece. Is we build these personas, these target audiences that we're going to build our, our um, businesses around, and we just make them up. We just go, well, I know my audience is uh, 35 to 45, and they do this, and they're How do you know that? So we have to go out and speak to people and we have to do some proper market research. And it, it way too much is based on assumption. And actually you find, because that's at the heart of the strategy, the whole strategy is wrong.
3: We've talked about, well, you mentioned YouTube. I'm interested in your perspective on the future of voice because there's something Gary Vaynerchuk, who is terribly successful with media, VaynerMedia uh, support, Thought leader on media and trends, and what's happening with all digital media and so on. He's very bullish on voice. Yet I heard you and Kieran talk about your views on voice, and also some of the security issues that we should be mindful of. Uh, what's your take on it right now?
4: I'm I'm incredibly cynical about a lot of technologies, and I, I think we when the technology first comes out, to so say it's voice assistants. Um, we are, oh, this is going to revolutionize the world and it's going to change the world. And it's like, yeah, it will in about 10 years or about five years. It's going to take a bit. It might not be that long, but it's going to take a bit longer than we think. Their voice recognition has come on leaps and bounds. It's incredible. Um, the Google, Alexa, Siri, all the different kind of voice assistants. But if you ask anyone, what do you actually do with your voice assistant? 99 of them out of 100 will say, I play music and I set timers. That, that is pretty much what people are using it for. Some people, you know, they might be getting recipes and they'll be doing various other things. I don't think that it's not going to be incredibly important. I just think we're at the very early stages of it. And I think that's very similar to virtual reality. You know, virtual reality, Facebook are putting a lot of money into it. If you haven't seen the new stuff they've done, they've done new headsets that can actually see your hands. So you see your hands in virtual reality and it's all very exciting. The only people that really care beyond the five-minute gimmick are people that are using it for gaming. So, and, and there are... You, you know, certain sectors people are arguing me on that say, Well, no, you can, you know, they're using it to practice surgery and stuff. Yes, there are those kind of things, but it's not a technology that's actually mainstream enough yet to be phenomenally useful. And it will come. I think the one thing we should be looking at is augmented reality, overlaying stuff on top of what you see via your phone, because the reality is there are now developers have toolkits that are going to allow them to build augmented reality apps a lot more easily and the phones are suddenly powerful enough to do really exciting things so i think that's going to move forward a lot more quickly the voice thing is is fascinating because everywhere i go people say are these things listening to me because me and my friend were having a conversation and then uh, and then suddenly i've started seeing ads for things and i'm sure i didn't search for it anywhere um it's possible but i from everything I've seen, it's not really happening. I mean, there's, there's a fair bit of evidence that they aren't doing this kind of stuff. I think they were at some point, some people. But what I would say is that we have this cognitive bias that if we're talking about something, we then tend to notice it. So there's, there's an element of that going on as well. One thing I would say that's really important about voice search, though, is it's kind of changed a little bit how we're searching in Google generally. And you'll see Google is reflecting this that when you go and do a search in Google now, underneath you get some ads, you might get one or two results, and then you get questions. And from a very practical kind of tip point of view, if you want to do some good content that's relatively easy to do um, and it's written, so it doesn't need to be particularly complicated to produce, is to answer questions and actually work out what are the questions that people are asking and then write a blog post that answers that or do a video or do a podcast, whatever it may be. Because those questions are coming up at the top of Google more and more. People are asking questions of their voice assistants more and more. And it's becoming a bit of a second nature thing to do. So I would definitely do that. The website we always recommend, if you look at answerthepublic.com, it takes all that data from Google. When you do a search in Google and it it recommends to you the other things that other people are searching for, answerthepublic.com takes all that data, sticks it into one place. You can put a phrase in and it will tell you the questions that people are asking around that phrase. And a really good way of starting is to answer some of those things. It's like frequently asked questions. And if you're providing value to people, they type a question into Google, you give them a good answer. They're on your website. They kind of trust you. It's a good opening point for a conversation with people online. So I think that it kind of ties in the content piece. But I mean, you know, realistically how people are using their voice assistants is going to change. And I've seen presentations from all the major players about how this is going to radically change things. But everyone's doing the same things with them at the moment. And I'm I'm sure that will change, but we're we're not quite there yet.
3: I've heard you guys talk about VR, virtual reality, and this may be a bit deep, uh, but but I heard you guys do a piece about virtual reality and living in this other world. And it just makes me think that can you see a time where we are going to be living in these VR worlds, which – Further removes us from our true self. Like, are we? Are we? Are we possibly going to? We're we already step... there. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're
4: already there with Instagram. When this, <laughs> to me, this is the, we're getting there in increments. And this whole thing of you like, this is my beautiful food. This is my beautiful partner. This is my beautiful holiday. This whole fake persona thing that people are projecting via Instagram a lot of the time, and and a lot of social media channels as well, is is a beginning point with this. I always talk about there's a this augmented reality thing overlaying things, I think rather than being virtual reality, I think this augmented kind of side of things is the next step there we you know we look at our phones over a hundred times a day. The next step is obviously if you 've got the Google Glass but a bit better where you can overlay things on top of things, I can then start changing what things look like, so you know you take that the next step and you 've got an augmented reality contact lens and you can just change things the whole time and the example I always give is that you know, if you, you've you got an ad blocker in your browser right now, <laughs> you can have a colleague blocker if you've got an irritating colleague, but you just won't be able <laughs> to see them, or you can change what they look like or anything else. My wife's fed up looking at my face. You can change what I look like, and I wouldn't blame her. But the, 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 we're kind of getting there in increments already, and I think that that can be good and bad. All of this stuff can be good or bad. right? When, when videotapes came out, and we had like VHS versus Betamax, and everyone was saying, oh, it's going to be video nasties, you know, now people can copy videos, there's going to be these shocking videos everywhere. And every time there's a new technology, there's all these horror stories about it. The the reality is that we can use this for great things as well. Um, But I think we've got to be careful. And the technology is moving so quickly, I think. And, you know, you could start getting getting into artificial intelligence and talking about how that evolves over a period of time. And there's, there's the dark future, you know, computers destroy us because they realize we're a threat. We're already in a bit of trouble with that because what's happening is that we've got these algorithms that are um, what we would call pattern recognition. They're recognizing patterns in data it's much better than humans ever could. So if you look at facial recognition and things like that, they, you know, they're using artificial intelligence. That decision is being made or that conclusion is being come to without full transparency for us how it's come to that conclusion. So we're already verging in some of these territories. and I think we're at a really interesting point. In that computer power is getting faster and faster. Our phones are doing things that we couldn't even imagine was possible 15, 20 years ago. And that opens up huge opportunities for efficiency and creativity and improving people's lives. And it's also going to cause absolute chaos as well. So when you look at something like uh, Amazon Go, Amazon Go, when you go in, you don't need a till. You walk in, you pick stuff off the shelf. It uses computer vision to recognize that. And you just walk out the store with the products. That means nobody working on the tills, which means you don't need those people doing those jobs anymore. And then if we've got driverless transport, we don't need the drivers driving the trucks that's delivering the food in the first place. And you keep on going through and you, you you work out, like we have in any industrial revolution, there's jobs that have been automated. But the risk is if we get it wrong with all this technology, there will be a bigger and bigger gap between the rich and the poor, as we're kind of seeing in some places already, and actually as a social impact. And we just need, I think education is the solution to this, that we need to be constantly educating our workforce and then getting ready for better and more interesting jobs and humans should be doing more interesting things. Um, but we just need to be ready for that. So I think there's all sorts of interesting questions in the technology piece and we just need to be prepared for it, but we're not prepared at the moment at all.
3: And The thing you guys have talked about, which we're not prepared for, is the fact that all these social fake accounts and... You can <laughs> and i 've heard you guys talk about the fact you, I, we could buy a following we we could go on today, find a website, and buy a hundred thousand followers, and we would go from no one to a hundred thousand just by buying or paying an amount of money That just sounds frightening how do we How do we navigate all this what 's fake what 's real? Is there a way to tell
4: yeah, I mean there is a way to tell the what 's happened is that influencer marketing has become such a thing that everyone wants to be an influencer. And if you can say, look, I've got 2 million followers, um, someone might pay you to feature their brand or whatever else it might be. So the the brilliant thing is if you go to Google and search buy Instagram, it will give you all the suggested searches and it will say buy Instagram followers. Buy Instagram followers cheap. Buy Instagram followers low cost. And it will just give you all the, the, the different variations. We looked at this. There are hundreds of thousands of searches in Google every month for people looking to buy followers. So this is happening on a big scale. We did some analysis, uh, and fascinatingly, we worked out that pretty much 50% of all Instagram accounts have some sort of fake following. Now, it's not necessarily their fault. It might be there's like a weird bot account. There's like an automated account that's following people. So I analyzed my account, and we used a tool, and you can use this now for free, called spark Toro. So SparkToro.com, and you can... It will do an audit of a Twitter account, for example, and it will tell you how many fake followers you've got, but how that compares to other people. Um, and I think the, the average was about 16% and my account had about 20%. Uh, <laughs> I have a TV, you. <laughs> which Kieran thought was quite amusing. But I think it's – yeah, I think it's because the account – I've had the account for a very, very long time. And it seems to be when you hit a certain critical mass, I think once you get past about 5,000 followers, the bots start following those accounts. So it's, it's interesting, but we, we're definitely getting the tools now to analyze this stuff. Um, there's also signs. I mean, if you look at what Instagram are doing, Instagram, uh, I think the test was in Australia, actually, that they were taking away that you could see other people's likes, how many likes they had on their posts. And the, the logic for that, they, they kind of explained it away saying, well, we don't want people to feel pressure to get lots of likes on their posts. But actually, what it's about is at the moment, the influencers have power because advertisers are going direct to the influencers to pay the money, which means they're not going to Instagram and advertising. So if Instagram wants to own that space, they need to take away some of the power of the influencers without destroying them because those are the people that make their platform so engaging. So there's a lot of change going on, but what I would say is if you are an influencer and you rely on Facebook or Instagram, it's a very precarious position to be in because they own the platform. You don't own it, and they can change at any point. If your entire audience is delivered via one platform... That's quite dangerous. And it's why we talk about don't do social in isolation. Don't just, you know, do everything in Facebook and get the engagement. You need to drive people to a website. You need to collect some data so you can build those relationships because otherwise you could lose it at any point. So we have to be a bit careful. But this whole fakery thing, we can start now to have the tools that will help us um, and to analyze it and work out what's real and what's not. But it's, it's hard, and there's a lot of fake stuff out there.
3: Well, for all of our listeners, Daniel, we have two people following us on Instagram, Robbo's mum and my mum, and they are legit. They are legit. That's a
4: genuinely engaged audience.
3: You can go onto Spark Toro and you will see profiles of both those ladies and uh, they're legit. So I just want to get that on the table. Um, (laughs) If I get Robbo to take the off-ramp at the next intersection... From we've talked about voice and VR and fake and everything else, I'd like to talk about LinkedIn, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to get you on the show because Robo and I have been fascinated by this. We had Christopher J. Reed, who is a LinkedIn guru, who uh, had him on the show gee, a couple of years ago now, and so we became very bullish on LinkedIn. And then I heard Gary Vaynerchuk say it's one of the things that he is, as he says, most excited, or as he says, incredibly excited. Where Where is LinkedIn going right now? We are both, I guess, falling out of love with it as a tool because it just seems to be a brag fest. It's just a photo of, I even saw something the other day with a photo of them with their dog. And it just seems that the usage is losing the plot. Where do you see LinkedIn? Is it still valuable? How do we use it? Where is the, the power in it?
4: So I think, and I've, I've kind of broken the rules on this at the beginning where the best practice used to be only connect to people that you would know if they phoned you up. So if someone said, oh, John Smith's on the phone, you go, ah, oh, great, John, I'll speak to him. Whereas I, someone sends me a friend request, unless they're a recruitment consultant or they're selling IT services, I'll pretty much connect to them. So I've got a, a big number of, of people I'm connected to and therefore I'm seeing exactly the same as you on my timeline. It's kind of turned into Facebook a little bit saying there's just so much stuff going on but saying that if i post a bit of content to linkedin it gets more engaged genuine engagement there than on any other channel so i think if you get your audience right it, it can and your content right it can work really effectively um but that's down to very traditional networking so most of the people that i'm truly engaged with on linkedin i know i've met in the physical real world or i've met them like we're we're kind of talking now and we have some sort of relationship. So I think if you use it in that way, if you think traditional networking, building relationships, actually talking to people, doing nice things for them. And, and out of a lot of this, I, I think that we talk about influencer marketing. We don't talk about advocacy enough. And kind of building this army of people that are willing to say nice things about you and are willing to be helpful towards you is massively important. And I see a big opportunity in LinkedIn for that. Um, direct selling in LinkedIn is just a complete non-starter. It just doesn't work. But if you can build those relationships and then put content in front of people that reminds them about what you do, I think there is an opportunity. We still could do quite a lot of our sales through LinkedIn, our big B2B sales, where we'll, you know, we call it social selling, but we're just building relationships with people and then pointing out that we've got something that may be useful to them. And it, it still can really work. I think, I think what you're going to see more of, and they've launched up some tools recently, which are pretty light touch at the moment, but they're doing skills assessments. So you can go in and you can assess your skills on, you know, the use of PowerPoint or something like that or something pretty basic. And I think at the moment it's fairly basic skills, but they're going to expand that. They bought lynda.com and turned it into LinkedIn Learning, which they haven't leveraged an awful lot yet. Um, So I think that whole learning skills, skill certification, proving what you know might come up a bit more in there as well. But I think if you just go back to old-fashioned networking, And thinking, what can I do for this person to ingratiate myself? Can I be helpful to them? Can I offer them something? What is it I can do? That is actually what makes a difference. And LinkedIn is very good for that.
3: We had a guy on the show called Evan Hafer, who is a co-founder of Black Rifle Coffee Company, super successful coffee company in a very short period of time. Former CIA, former Green Beret. And one of the things he said about his brand and the people he employs is They have to be mission first, not me first. And that is something he took from being Mm. in the military and working in the government is that the people who were the most successful were mission first, not me first. And all this, and they got a super successful social following. And everything they do is about their mission. And his partner, Matt Best, said on the show a couple of weeks prior to that, he said, We outwardly promote our mission, not just inwardly. And those two things, those two shows really stuck with me. Then I look at LinkedIn and it's not mission. Very, very few posts that I see are about a mission for that person and or- putting content out that's going to make me betterer. It's all about them, their world, their awards, proud to be here, excited to be here. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems to me to be a fundamental thing, Daniel. I'm just curious on your perspective of what we put on, how we use LinkedIn. If we had that view that the boys from Black Rifle take, would that help?
4: Uh, completely. Because I mean, the the bottom line is that you know, here's me winning an award. The, the people that you know will like that because they'll be happy for you if you've built that already people that don't know you can give a damn if you've an award or what. so the 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 reality is if you're showing that you are believing it's me i think i think passion goes a long way and it's the same as this mission thing to some extent is that i got away with an awful lot in my public speaking career my podcasting career of not being a great public speaker of not necessarily being a great podcast but really caring about what i was talking about and was passionate about it and wanted other people to get it and we I remember really early on in my career, we started an SEO agency. And our whole strategy was we were just going to publish how to do what we did. We're going to say, this is our methodology. This is what we do. This is why we do it. And our chairman was just kind of like, what on earth are you doing? This is against all the principles. And what we kind of realized was actually no one can be bothered to do this stuff. And if you tell them, they'll just kind of see how complicated it is. And they'll get you to it because they trust you because you've been honest. So I think the mission piece is really important. One of the things we did the digital marketing podcast was that we we very consciously don't really mention what target internet does. I mean we do now and again and we'll kind of pipe up with it up doing this thing and Kieran asked me a question, oh that's quite interesting. But generally speaking, we're not really advertising the brand because we know if we help people, they'll trust us. And I, I completely believe that mission thing. And it you know, if, if my strap line is the best digital marketing, e learning, no one cares. It's that's about me. Whereas if I turn around and go hands on practical digital marketing advice, it, it totally turned things around completely. So I think if you have that mission, but the other thing you can't do is you can't give your employees a mission. You can't say this is this is what you're going to believe. They have to have gone on a journey to actually be there. You might get the right people in the first place that you know, completely believe it or what we've done at the uh, digital leadership program is we are getting the students to set what our kind of strap line is, what our mission is, what we really believe in, what our set of values is. Because if you set that, then you're going to buy into it. So I think you need to do the internal piece, but it needs to be external. I think that's hugely valid and hugely important. And it's what differentiates good social media and good content from stuff that just doesn't work and is the self-promotion. And the digital marketing world is full of self-promoters. And uh, I, I would much rather somebody listen to the podcast and got something useful than knew who I was. I'm not really that interested in that at all.
3: Just on your podcast, you're obviously a supporter of podcasts. You've been doing it a while. You've got a successful show with Kieran. How have your ideals of podcasts changed in the last year or so? When you look at the industry where the podcast medium or the industry of podcasting now, how, how have your views, your ideals of that medium changed in, say, the last year or year and a half?
4: I've actually, I always thought we need to produce this more and we need to spend more time doing it. And what we actually worked out is really good sound quality is massively important. So we focus on that rather than anything really else. And the, we just focus on the content. But I really enjoy it. It's probably one of my, the, my favorite things to do in that I'm so busy all the time. And I always go, oh, no, I haven't got time this week here. And I'm going to have to put it off till then. And then when I sit down and do it, there's, I really, really enjoy it. And I like having a chat with Kieran. And we've got a bit of rapport between us because we're friends. And we've worked together for a long time. And my, my attitude towards it now is the more that I'm enjoying doing it, the better the podcast is because it's genuine and I think that really comes out now. If you look at what made good radio for years was good, genuine conversation, people that are passionate, people that believe in things, people that believe in the mission. So that's been my focus now. It's going, you know what? There's always going to be people out producers. There's always people that can get maybe better guests in, although we get some great people. Um, you know, the reality is that I just want people that are passionate. I want people that really believe in what they're doing. And I want to enjoy it. And the more I'm enjoying it, the, more, the better the episodes seem to do. so that Because, again, you've got to differentiate. And you can, you can engineer differentiation through trying to be you know, smarter and cleverer and whatever, but actually people are listening to a voice. And I think you know, listening to your voice, listening to the podcasters that are, are good at this stuff, they're genuinely interested. They're genuinely passionate about it. They want to get stuff out there that helps people. And I think that's what makes a difference.
3: I think the term is smarterer and cleverer. And betterer, I think is
4: actually is actually. (laughs)
2: We're going to start a Mojo show dictionary, I think, (laughs) so people understand what we're actually talking about. Sometimes
4: I like it. I think that you know, smarterer is something I'm going to get smarterer into my lecture tomorrow.
2: (laughs) Smarterer, there you go. There's a challenge. Work that into your lecture tomorrow, and then send us a recording. We'll put it on the show.
4: (laughs) Gold. That's gold. I'll video the students' faces, and they're looking at me, going,
2: "Oh, you are good. You're good."
3: Uh, I feel one one final question. I'm going to endeavor to set this up. It's interesting that you teach people, digital leadership, digital marketers, how you educate them on how to do what they do better. And in a lot of cases, it's said that the primary, I guess, concern for a digital marketer is to gain the attention of said target audience. And the more you have their attention, the better. And we had John Zaratsky on the show a few months ago who wrote a book called Make Time. He used to work at YouTube and Google with his partner Jason Knapp and they talk about the infinity pool, is that the digital marketers get our attention, take us into the infinity pool, which has no ending and before we know it we're 40 minutes in looking at cat videos What's your own yeah, right. personal philosophy on this, Daniel? Because you are a smart guy and I really enjoyed chatting with you. I enjoy your show. When we come down to attention, focus, what matters, which is getting a really bad rap and digital's being blamed for it, where, where do you personally sit when you're in that industry and you've got your own children and your own world to focus on what matters? How do you, how do you personally navigate that?
4: So I, I think we have got a problem with this because if you – if you look at what's happened to advertising, it's become a race to the bottom. Right? Uh, I I want your attention because I want to get your attention so long enough that I can chase some ads because that's the way we're monetizing ads. And therefore, it's changed the media completely. Uh, serious journalism has suffered because of it because it's it's much harder, you know, to get you to engage with something serious than it is a throwaway kind of celebrity piece. And I can get you to look at twenty of those celebrity pieces because it appeals to that bit of your brain that gets that little hit every time you do something that's a little bit pleasurable. So I think there's all sorts of quite difficult questions we need to ask ourselves about how we're we using social media. But what I would say is what I want from my digital is not your attention. I want a relationship. I want to actually build that over a period of time. And I don't need to be in front of you all the time, but what I want is to have provided enough value as it happens in any relationship, but it goes both ways that I'm able then to be front of mind when you need me or when you need what I do. So, it comes back to the mission, it comes back to the passion, it comes back to all those things that we've spoken about, that actually, if you're doing things just to get people's attention, that's a very dangerous race to the bottom because you can. there's always a new way of getting someone's attention and it, 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 you know, it, it can be any number of different things, but it's not always a particularly ethical or morally um, high way of doing things. Whereas actually, if I can provide value, And I can build that value over time. That's what makes a difference. I think we do have some challenges around this. I mean, I've got kids and I see how they're consuming social media and I help them kind of manage that. Um, And the world is changing. I mean, I also think we do still happily watch movies and we will happily watch things that are hours long. And, you know, there are shifts. We haven't got these tiny attention spans we necessarily talk about. But I think we're also very guilty of these kind of little guilty instant pleasure things in our pockets where we get our phone out and it's just – it's a chewing gum for the mind. And I think there's a danger with that and I also think that that doesn't need to be what you do and I think you should actively avoid it.
3: How have you – just before I start to Robbo – how have you actively helped your kids and or your wife – navigate that you just mentioned that you are in this industry you know the good the bad and the really ugly give us for for any parent partner listening how how do we how what have you suggested how have you done it to help your children navigate this to make better decisions
4: a couple of things so with my teenage daughter um I'll give you an example. A friend of mine was very senior at a very large technology company that you would have all heard of, and he locked his son's phone down. He installed apps on it, so his son couldn't get onto any website other than one on an approved list. If he went to one, it would send an approval request to dad, um, and it was pretty locked down, so he could really manage very closely why access the Wi-Fi at home was locked down, all that kind of stuff. I, d- I didn't think that was a good approach because I know teenagers will find a way of doing things if they want to do them. and I, I had a different approach with my daughter, and I said, okay, um, if you want to install any particular app or wherever it may be, speak to me first, we'll have a conversation and then we'll, we'll discuss it. Um, the rules are this, that all your passwords for all of your Instagram and all that kind of stuff accounts go in a locked box in your bedroom. And I don't want the key for it, but if you ever disappear or something terrible happens, I mean, I need to get into your profiles. So I won't go in that unless I have to, and I have to smash the box open. So, you know, I've done it, but there was a bit of a security kind of gate there that we could, we could kind of check on if anything happened and we had reasonable conversations and she made a few mistakes, but we would, we were just disgusting. So that was, that was a good way of doing it. My absolutely brilliant. My friend's son, whose phone was locked down had hacked the phone and installed an app. where he had to swipe with four fingers to see all of the secret apps that he'd installed. So it kind of came back to my point of teenagers will find a way. And if you don't think they're going to, they're going to. So I think, just open communications and just talking about it and just trying to explain things rather than just getting absolutely enraged. I am also bewildered sometimes when I see my friends' uh, kids posting pretty naked pictures of themselves online at pretty early ages and the parents not really thinking, yeah, no, I don't really care. And I, I think we, we've got to see this just because everyone's doing it doesn't mean it's necessarily okay to do it. So I think you've got to be a bit cautious and have those conversations. And the question I always ask is, why are you posting that picture? why what are you trying to project and actually having that and not in an aggressive way but just having that kind of conversation and i do it with my students as well it's like what are you trying to achieve by posting that picture what's the thinking behind why you're doing it and i think that's really important but i think that open dialogue is the most important thing um i also think we are engineering games and things to be fairly addictive if you look at fortnite um the whole thing is designed to be pretty much addictive so um uh, that's my opinion by the way um just to caveat that but the the reality is that like anything else i think with my son we have a, we have a system now which a lot of people think we're pretty mean we have another app that he has to do chores and he earns screen time and you know, if he does certain things he gets certain amount of time because otherwise he'll quite happily sit on the screen all day long so uh, he kind of earns his time and therefore it's a privilege and it's not just something he can do all the time and that seems to work for us so I think there's, there's practical steps you can take. But I, I think just as they get to be teenagers, just asking the question, why are you doing it? Why do you want to do it? What are you trying to project? And I, that can really help broaden up some other things that you want to talk to them about as well.
3: And I think just what's really nice about that, Daniel, is it takes us on a complete circle from where we started at the top of the show, where we talked about the difference between a digital strategy and a company strategy or a business strategy. Is there's got to be a, a broader why? Why are you doing this? What are you hoping to achieve? So it kind of is a really nice circle. It goes back to our personal lives as well as it should for the business lives. And uh, I'm very respectful of your time. I've just want to hand over to the big man in the corner here to uh, his favourite segment. If you do you have 90 seconds more?
4: Of course I do. Good pleasure. Here we go. go. Yeah.
0: Robbo's Nifty 90.
4: Uh, okay,
2: Lola, start the clock. Uh, what's your favourite pizza topping? Uh, cheese the cheese what's the last book
4: is cheese is because i've 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 just decided to go vegan for some goddamn really? reason have you really and um, I'm kind of oh. craving cheese. Okay,
2: show's over. <laughs>
4: yeah, that's it. All right, you're out. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, say that to an Australian, it's like, that's all over.
2: Roll the run tape. <laughs> Roll the credits, it's all over. Yeah, Roll- right. <laughs>
4: Roll the credits. The, the quickest 90 seconds question ever. Yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> uh, the last book you read? Uh, the last book I read was A Year Without Pants, which is all about uh, working at um, WordPress and what it's like to have distributed companies. Okay.
2: Dogs or cats, what's your, what's your preference?
4: Dogs. Because? Uh, I've got a beagle. Oh, and I yeah. thought, I've got cats as well. And I thought I was a cat person. Then I got a dog and I just it's changed my world.
2: <laughs> What's your favourite swear
4: word? Uh, I, I don't swear on podcasts, but I, I, I would say fuck. What's the last song that got stuck in your head? Uh, Baby Shark. I know we're <laughs> playing it at the, at the college today. Just driving me mad. Oh
2: my God. That's the same as me. Jesus. It plays over and over in this house. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Finish this sentence. I never get tired of... What's something you need to stop doing? Procrastinating. (laughs) If you could have a ticket to anywhere in the world, where would you go
4: and why? Um, Australia. I come to you guys. All right. Why is that? I think it's always good to to meet face-to-face and you can give me some cheese and a burger.
2: Done. Now, Fish and Chips on Bondi Beach is our latest plan for a few outside broadcasts. So, um, yeah, make sure you look us up.
4: Sounds like your plan.
2: Uh, Sounds good to me. What's the besides birth of your kids and your, your wedding day and all that sort of stuff? What's the, what's the most memorable moment of your life to date?
4: I think very recently when we we'd had this plan to open the academy, the leadership program and this, this kind of physical building in our mind and we from idea to opening the doors and having student the doors was about 16 months and just to walk into this building and have it full of students. Um, and it was a bank before. It was just, that was pretty phenomenal. And it felt like we we created something new. So that was pretty meaningful.
2: The big question uh, you wake up in the morning, your mojo's not kind of happening. Uh, you go downstairs, you grab a cup of coffee and put something on the radio, Spotify, whatever that may be. What song would it be to get you suitably motivated to face the day? Uh,
4: Jackie Wilson your love keeps lifting me higher because I have a very very supportive wife who's also the commercial director of our business and uh, is is a kind of bit of a rock when I'm having a a terrible time so uh, yeah that works for me (laughs) your love lifting me
1: higher than I
2: Great one. Thanks for taking care of the nifty 90. And I also have to say, just quickly, you're talking about teenagers finding a way. I, uh, I put some, uh, some phone security software on my, te- my eldest teenager's son's phone. He's 15. Uh, and he decided the best way to get rid of that was to actually just zap his phone. <laughs> he just raised the whole thing and got rid of it and started again. So um,
4: they will find a way. They will find a way and they're they're always going to find a way that we can't even think of. So Yes,
2: absolutely. Because I was sitting there one night thinking, it's nine o'clock, how's he on his phone? And then realised that that's what he'd done. So there you go.
4: They're innovators and problem solvers. Exactly.
3: Daniel, if we want people to know where to go to find out more about you, the work you do, your podcast, where's the hub for for you guys?
4: So Target Internet um, for the podcast, it's Target Internet for... slash podcast uh, or target internet forward slash contact. And you'll find all of my contact details, Twitter, Instagram, all that.
3: And out. the book that we talked about was the digital culture. Just one final thing that I find curious is the book's title, Digital Culture, which we talked about at the top of the show. And that argues whatever digital might mean for a business if you, you said that if you don't create a digital culture, you'll most likely fail or at least fall short of what you want to achieve. With all we've talked about and the fact that even the name was a contentious issue for you, how in, in the shortest possible way, how would you, to a leader who runs their own business, sole operator or somebody who is a big organisation that has a digital team, in the most simplistic terms, which is where you come from, the fundamentals, how would you describe a digital culture that you think is the right digital culture?
4: The, the pace of change of the environment is getting faster and faster. And what it's really about is having a culture of ongoing change. The, the idea that there's a digital transformation, and you just change and you're done is nonsense. So it's a culture of ongoing change. And that applies to individuals about constantly educating themselves and for organisations to be agile enough to change quickly and to adopt a changing surroundings. So really, rather than be about digital, it's about change.
3: And I think that is the perfect way to finish it. Mate, this has been terrific. I highly recommend people go and check out the podcast, the Digital Marketing Podcast. It's great that you guys do a terrific job. Good guests, you're succinct, cover the fundamentals, you make it accessible for all of us. We really appreciate you getting us into your day, mate. It was, uh, it was a true pleasure.
4: It's been an absolute pleasure for me as well so thank you for your time and uh, thank you for listening
1: i am undercover agent jay dobbins i spent two years living amidst the hell's angels but it was nothing like spending one hour on the mojo radio show
2: the usual juicy takeaways in that little hour or so. That was nice. Very well done, Mr. Burwistle. It's a good show as well. I I would
3: listen to Daniel. I find it's just good to... Sometimes it's stuff you know. They recently did a show which was the the trends that we can expect to see in the years ahead. I find those shows thought-provoking to try and get ahead of the curve and then open up your eyes and ears the possibilities. And when you start seeing these things appear you've got some framework for them to then jump ahead and try and get in before your competitors. So I like, I like the work he does. I think his show is very, very good. And we really haven't done anything in branding and
2: marketing and kind of in a business sense for a while. So I thought it was, that was great. It's interesting in terms of you talking about preparing for the future and, and thinking ahead because this whole coronavirus thing that we talked about at the beginning of the show has actually changed overnight the way I'm marketing voodoo sound. Because for 15 years, I've been a home studio working in isolation, doing stuff for people when they're not here. All of a sudden, that's gone from a backyard industry, inverted commas, backyard, because as we know, I'm working for stations all around the world. But here in Australia, it hasn't been as widely accepted working that way as it is around the world. So all of a sudden here in Australia... I now have, I've now changed my marketing from, hey, this is this is something you should think about to, hey, this is now how you do it. This is how it works if you want to stay away from busy recording studios where there's people in and out and voiceover artists coming in and out. This is how you do it. So while you talk, well, it's great to talk about thinking ahead. It's also interesting to put that in the here and now and go, how can I change? How can I sidestep at in an instant? And I, I don't know, it was something I've been thinking about, especially over the weekend as I was doing my my social media for the week ahead. The corona is changing the world. The Mojo Radio Show. For anybody
3: who didn't catch our show last week, uh, we got a very odd telephone message on our answering machine that came from the pearly gates. I th- it was actually so bizarre. I think it's worth <laughs> replaying.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, hi. This is Heaven Calling. Please hold for a call from Dave from the Dead Rock Stars Division. No. Yeah, g'day. Look, it's uh, Dave here, boys. I'm the Chief Bouncer in the Dead Rockstars Division here at the Pearly Gates. Look, the boss has asked me to give you guys a quick call, because some bloke turned up here the other day and was telling everyone about your show. We listen every week, but we've got a bit of a problem here. Hendrix and Freddie have been arguing with Bond, Scott and Janis Joplin about who's got the best playouts on for your show. Hendrix and Mercury reckon it's Radio Gaga, because you blokes talk too much. Yeah, it's kind of true. And Bon and Joplin reckon it's long way to the top, the Chico roll version, of course. Uh, look, personally, I really don't care, but they're driving us bonkers up here. Can you just play Stairway to Heaven? Hopefully by the time everyone stop playing air guitar, they'll have forgotten about this crap and just shut the f- up. Look, thanks, fellas. Oh, and by the way, uh, the boss says to say, uh, see you both soon. (laughs) Oh, hey, hey, Morrison, you can't smoke that shit in here. Oh, no, i you just dropping peanut butter and banana sandwich all over the place. Get a plate or something, you fat.
3: So we were talking about Stairway to Heaven, and what was curious about this is after we had finished recording the show and we had played Stairway to Heaven... You you had another version that you had found which actually was – within it I think there's some lessons of rock.
2: Oh, really? Okay. Well, the, the version that I found was uh, Hart performing Stairway to Heaven at the Kennedy Centre Awards in 2012. And the Kennedy Centre Awards are basically um, – presidential awards uh, to people who have done great things in the arts. Dustin Hoffman was on the same night as Led Zeppelin, uh, David Letterman, amongst others. And, yeah, so so basically as part of the show, Hart played Stairway to Heaven with um, John Bonham's son, Jason Bonham.
3: Where The Lesson of Rock comes into this, and I think this is something you could apply to any company, whether you work in food industry or you're removing asbestos, whether you're a doctor, whether you are a carpenter, a tradie, whether you drive trucks. I think there's a, there's a couple of things that we've covered off in our show for the last couple, last couple of seasons probably. And it probably ties back to Bohemian Rhapsody when Freddie Mercury in the movie was sitting in front of the EMI executive and he says, we just need more hits And he wanted to repeat what the band had done. And the drummer said, it's not widgets we're making. We don't want to keep repeating ourselves over and over again. And the EMI executive said, let's follow the formula. I like formulas. And if you take that premise and then apply it to Stairway to Heaven, your comment was, it's still Stairway to Heaven. It's still true to the original But it's not, and it just makes it more interesting. So, for example, Stairway to Heaven had a male singer. So if you break the formula and turn it around and go, well, let's not do a male singer, let's do a female singer so they get heart in, who were amazing. Then you go, it's a rock anthem. Well, if you broke the formula of a rock anthem, then you'd put in a full choir, which was amazing. Yeah, but you can't really do this because we can't get the original drummer. Well, then if you break the formula, let's use the DNA of the drummer and get his son to play. So I'll put the the link to the YouTube clip which has this performance, which is, is epic. But what's curious of this is you go, it's still true to Stairway to Heaven, which it is, but they've taken all the individual ingredients and said, how do you break the formula? Now, any company could do that. Any company could take all the bits, and I talk about this a lot when I'm out doing keynote speaking. You can break down the formula for your company, regardless of what you do. Take each individual bit and say, if we were to break the formula and do the opposite or do something different, what would we do? And then you can put those things back together again, and then you get an amazing performance. Can we just play, I don't know, 30 seconds of a great grab of the show, just, just to, maybe maybe that bit with the choir to illustrate how they've actually taken a rock anthem and made it differenter. Lola from the third stanza.
2: The
1: road, the the
3: Rather than play out where Stairway to Heaven again, because we don't like to repeat ourselves. Although Freddie Mercury seems to think we do. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) You've
2: watched the whole Kennedy Centre Honours Awards. Uh, Please don't ask me to pick one. (laughs) Uh, Foo Fighters, rock and roll are amazing. Uh, Your mate Kid Rock doing Ramble On... Ha, actually, something
3: else, just something else that's in there that was really good that you pointed yeah. out to me, which I went back and watched, was Jack Black doing the introduction. That was, <laughs> How good is that? That was a yeah. really, really clever piece how, of writing. How good is the Zepathon? <laughs> it's just clever writing. It, it was is, really yeah. clever, a clever piece of writing. And and if you break that down, actually, it's, it's a clever piece of writing, but his delivery is mm-hmm. absolutely
2: gold. Like that, That is yeah. worth
3: watching, so I'm not going to play it, but it's worth... Worth watching on YouTube. It's all
2: in the it's all in the clip on the link though, but um mate, the standout performance for the night and it's only just got its head in front would have to be Lenny Kravitz doing a whole lot of love. We're at
1: leaders and gentlemen, Lenny Kravitz.
0: Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoo sound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.